This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is Giles Brandreth. Over the years, I've been lucky enough to meet and interview an extraordinary range of remarkable people. Princes, presidents, prime ministers, all sorts. From Olivia de Havilland, who's starting Gone with the Wind, to Christopher Robin, the son of A.A. Milne, whose real-life teddy bear was Winnie the Pooh. When I talked to the American author, Lois Lowry, she said to me, The worst part of holding the memories is not the pain, it's the loneliness of it. Memories need to be shared. Rosebud is the podcast where famous, not so famous, and occasionally infamous people share their first memories. Welcome to Rosebud. This week, I'm talking to Rory Stewart. You may know what he looks like. You may be fascinated by him. I certainly am. I think he's a remarkable individual. He's had a very varied career, which you could describe as genuinely adventurous. He started out as a diplomat, but then left to undertake a two-year walk across Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, India, and Nepal, about which he wrote a best-selling book. He then became a deputy governor in Iraq, writing another book about that. After a spell in Kabul, running a charity, he was elected as an MP. Well, we have that in common. Eventually joining the cabinet. We don't have that in common. He resigned from the Conservatives in 2019, ran for London Mayor as an independent. (laughs) Well, he withdrew during the pandemic. And he now presents one of the most successful podcasts in the UK. The rest is politics with Alistair Campbell. As you'll discover, we've got a few things in common, including the fact that we both have books out. Mine is about the late Queen. It's called Elizabeth, an Intimate Portrait. And uh, Rory's book is called Politics on the Edge. It's his story of the challenges, absurdities, and realities of political life. If the book is as interesting as he is, it'll be a very good read. So I want to get to grips with the real Rory Stewart. And I'm going to begin by going right back to the beginning and discovering his first memory. What is your very first memory? Not one that you've reinvented later through seeing a family album, but actually, if you, in your head, go back, what can you picture first or hear first in your mind's eye? So the first memory that I can securely date as being early is I'm standing in my a pre-prep school, which is a little school called Eaton House uh, in Eaton Square in London. And I've just turned up on my first day, and the boy next to me says, how old are you? And I say, I'm four. And he says, you're not allowed to be here. You can't come here until you're five. And, and this obviously had a big impact on me because both my age and the conversation stuck in my mind ever since. Yeah, I think this could be. I mean, I think we could close the conversation now. I think this is everything. I mean, you weren't the right age, and you were in the wrong place. And you were feeling, actually, I shouldn't be here. I'm being told I've got to get out. So you are the ultimate outsider who's turned up. Well, I, I do. I mean, now, you, now you get going on this. I, I, I do often have dreams, actually, recently about the House of Commons, where um, I am frequently somehow entering the House of Commons. I'm not supposed to be there. And various polite doorkeepers are finding me down various corridors and escorting me out. Or I'm lost in some maze of sort of beautiful Victorian library, trying to make my way to the chamber. And again, I'm intercepted and removed. But so I, maybe there's a theme here. I felt that 
when I was a member of Parliament, <laughs> I didn't need to be asleep. I was awake, and I thought I don't belong here. I felt totally my first day as an MP. Did you enjoy your first day as an MP? I, I found the whole thing horrifying. Um, I, I think, I, I you probably if you'd been interviewing me when I was um, when I went in and I was in my late thirties. I would have sounded quite confident and said, no, I, I, I know roughly what this thing is. But, of course, I now realise that I had projected these very romantic images of what was going on onto Parliament. And the most romantic is I thought this is going to be a place where we're going to have serious policy discussions. And I walked into PMQs, and it was the most depressing thing I'd ever experienced. Partly because some of the debate was about things like Afghanistan that I knew quite well. I'd spent three, four years living there, and I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear the sort of, well, the Prime Minister congratulate my local hmm. football team when I thought we were going to be discussing matters of state. And you didn't give in to that. What I did was I gave in to it. I hated it at first. And the first time I asked a question at PMQs, Prime Minister's Questions, it was a, a question I'd been given by the whips to ask. And I thought, well, this is obviously the way to make progress. They feed you a line, you take the line. I remember having lunch with my wife and rehearsing this and line. And when, when was this? This was 1992. So they've been doing this for a very long time. This uh, is not new. I mean, I imagine the whole thing's gone to hell oh, in a handbasket, but no, they've, no, been, no, they've been at this forever. They've been at this, and it was yeah. just to, to get Yabu nonsense right. going. Well, except there was a purpose to it. It was then, to explain the purpose in those days, John Major was a bit beleaguered, and the idea was to give him some easy hits so that it would rally the troops and make them a rather good, because if the morale of your people is good in the chamber, then the morale for the party is good outside. Can you remember outside. roughly what your question was? Oh, I, I, I can yeah. remember exactly go on, go on, what it was, and it's too humiliating. <laughs> it was uh, something to do with Tony Blair. Yeah. I was going to, had to refer to him not as the leader of the Labour Party, yeah. but as the loser of the Labour Party. Very good. So, and they came up with this line for me. So, so will the Right Honourable Member accept that the loser of the Labour uh, Party is... Correct, the yeah. leader of the Labour Party, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it, it's, well, the fact that I can remember it is I was so ashamed about how cheap it was. And I kept a diary when I was an MP. Of, of, uh, and the early days are very unhappy times, thinking here, I was the same sort of age as you, late 30s, about to turn yeah. 40. And I thought, well, what have I done with my life? I've sacrificed all this money. I didn't realise we'd be earning so little. I'm going to, I can't afford to send the children to school anymore. I'm, I'm living up half the time up in Chester. I never see my wife. But you didn't feel like Gladstone. How did Gladstone feel? I don't know. I sort of dignified, serious, <laughs> yeah. noble, grave, bestriding it like a colossus. I only felt that when I was kneeling by some ducks and a swan in Chester with Douglas Hurd who was a good man, and he was the foreign secretary, and we were both on our haunches, and we both fell over in the swan turd. Oh, very good. And then and, you really felt like Gladstone. And he said yeah. to me, do you think this is, do you think Gladstone did much of this? <laughs> and he said, what are we, what are we doing? He actually, I, I knew him well, and we shared the same birthday, the 8th of March. And he said, let's go and have a cup of tea and talk about actually what we should be doing with our time here. And he was really quite concerned about the way things were going. It worried him. He was a good and decent person. But I thought, well, this is the way the game is played, and I played it. But you decided in the long run not to play the game. Yeah, I, I never read a whip's question. Um, I, 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 they never actually even gave me a question. They gave a lot of questions to people to read. And I think that probably should have been the moment at which I realised yeah. I, well, I, I was in trouble. The fact that they, they were passing yeah, questions to, to all people. my colleagues to read out, and they never did it to me. It was the same, the same with... Committees, they never talked to me yeah. about wanting to go on a committee. I did once, I had a deep interest in local government. I'd come an MP, and I was, a great, I was the only person in the world who believed in David Cameron's big society. So I was a great sort of champion mm. of this stuff. So I, a bill was going through, a local government bill, and I went to the whips and said, you know, I really like to be on this committee. I'm deeply interested in this subject. I spoke to the minister and everything. And sure enough, of course, I was not put on the committee. That's the way, that's the old trick of not, if you don't want to be on a committee, go and tell them that you're really interested in it, and then they don't. I mean, I eventually became a whip, and I loved it. Uh, and we had lists of people, you know, the A list of people we could rely on, the B list were slightly, but we had to do them. And then, of course, the, 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 the insane, the lame, the halt, the, and the difficult. People like me. The D, you'd be on the D list, absolutely, from the start. Okay, more of politics in a moment. We jumped ahead. I want to go right back to the beginning. You, age four, at this school. And tell me the first memories you have of your parents. I've read quite a bit about you and your father. Tell me about your first memory of your father and your early days with him. 
well, he was the most wonderful man. Um, I have many memories which I can date because when we were, I was born in Hong Kong, we moved back to London. And then when I was just before my sixth birthday, we moved to Malaysia. So any memories in London I know of from before I'm six. And I have very strong memories of, I guess I must have been four or five, being in the shower with him while he sung Gilberton Sullivan and hearing his enormous voice echoing off the walls. Seeing the very long shrapnel wound in his thigh, which was um, he'd picked up just after the D-Day landings, which was about two inches long, and you could, like a pen, you could stick a pen in it. He would always, the lovely thing is, he'd let me come in as soon as I woke up in the morning. And little boys wake up very early, half past five, six in the morning, and I was allowed to creep into the bedroom, fight I didn't wake my mother, and poke him. And then he would roll out of bed. And he would come and play with me for the first three hours of the morning before he uh, dropped me at school and went to work. And this was true even when he was number two in, in SIS. He was the deputy head of the Secret Service, and he was still spending the time between half past five and half past eight in the morning playing soldiers on the nursery floor with this little boy. And it was soldiers he played? What, were those the sorts of games you played? What yeah, were the- Black Watch soldiers, extremely important. The red hackle had to be painted on every single one oh, of these plastic Oh, you were playing soldiers. with toy soldiers? You weren't being soldiers? No, no. They, these were, this, we did the Battle of Waterloo a lot. And the Black Watch, in his mind, played a very major role in most of the major battles of history. That's funny. I thought the Kiltrin Guards were the people who played <laughs> were key to the Battle of Waterloo. Not, but not, I clearly not misread history. Concerned, no, it was no. the Black Watch. Yeah, it was the Black him. Watch, yeah. And he was a gentle person? No, he was a, he was a very um, he he saw his older brother who was only a year older than him and, and my grandfather was in India they grew up together they went to prep school together school together um, went to the same college in Oxford both joined the Black Watch together but were separated into different battalions and his brother was wounded at Alamein and killed in Sicily in forty three uh, when my father was twenty one and. He saw himself as being the rough, tough guy who looked after his older brother. He saw his older brother as a gentle, introspective, poetic type. And he was the, he was the bruiser. And it's an odd thing for a younger brother to feel that you're looking after your mm-hmm. older brother. And I think uh, he took that into life. He was a, a very commanding presence, I think would be the word. So he was a, he was a tough cookie. It's a tough cookie. And the Gilbert and Sullivan, it was stentorian, his very performance. Very stentorian, very stentorian. And he, um, you know, I remember walking through the streets of Hong Kong with him when I, I guess I was 12 or 13. And somebody somehow collided with his back or something. And he threw this man over his shoulder and whacked him onto the ground and claimed that the man was trying to pick his pocket or... I certainly didn't see the attack. All I witnessed was my father bodily lifting somebody up in the air. The immediate response. Yeah, yeah. Did he ever hit you? Uh, he slapped me um, for not paying attention at recorder practice when I was seven. It was the only time he ever did it. And I felt deeply, deeply aggrieved. And I, I feel very sad. I mean, one of the reasons I'm sort of against slapping children is that he was the most loving, affectionate father. And I feel such deep affection for him. And that one little moment where he lost his temper with a seven-year-old doing his recording practice got sort of seared into my memory in a way that it needn't have been. Did he regret it? Was he conscious of it immediately that he'd made a mistake? Or I think so, yes. Was that your only bad moment with him? Is that your only bad recollection? We had other moments. I mean, he would lose his temper, but he was it was such a quick flare-up, and he came so wonderfully to apologise almost immediately after to hug me and kiss me and say, darling, I'm so sorry, that I never, I never felt that there was never any time of brooding on it. He never left, let anything last more than a few minutes. When did he die? Died uh, eight years ago, almost to this day, I mean, in, in uh, eight, eight years and a week ago, yeah. And were you with him? I was, yes, I was with him. Um, I'd been contacted, I was in the States and my mother contacted me and my father had had very bad nosebleeds. He was a very robust man. But he was beginning to have bad nosebleeds. My mother was worried, and she said, I think you should fly back. So I got on a plane and flew back, and I arrived that Sunday morning pretty jet-lagged off the plane and went in to see him, and he said, darling, I'm so pleased you've come. You can decide what to do. They keep saying I should go back to hospital, but I'm not sure. And so I said, well, I think you know, maybe a bit of rest, and then we'll talk about it. And 
And uh, he talked to me a little bit about how beautiful the trees were outside and that we'd planted together since Scotland. I read to him a bit. Um, and I was reading to him Dickens' History of England, and he obviously thought it was really boring because <laughs> he said, uh, he said, darling, enough of that. You know, <laughs> how are things at work? And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm a, you know I was a junior minister in, in Department of Environment, and I said, you know, it's absolutely terrific, and I love the national parks and the chief executives of the national parks. And he looked at me a bit skeptically and said, well, darling, I'm very pleased that you, you know, enjoying your job. But I could see he was really thinking, come on, that sounds a bit rubbish. Um, and then he, I, I thought he needed to rest. He looked sleepy. I walked outside for a walk. And my sister then ran outside, shouting for me. And I ran back in again. And he'd sat bolt upright. And his heart was obviously, he was in the middle of a heart attack. He said, this really isn't good, darling. You know, get me some pills. And I got him some pills and put him in his mouth. And he fell off the bed. And I tried to do, um, I tried to resuscitate him uh, for, uh, I suppose, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes while we waited for the hospital to come. Uh, and then I think it's a very interesting sort of revelation. I hadn't quite realized. The, the ambulance um, person said to me, do you want us to resuscitate him? And I didn't really know how to answer that question because it was only sort of 10 minutes mm -hmm. after he'd... And I tried to get a bit of a sense of what that meant. And it seemed to me that the idea was that if he'd been without oxygen for 10 minutes, that it wasn't going to be a very happy resuscitation even if they were successful um, so yeah, I, I made that call for him uh, and but what I loved was that in the minutes beforehand he'd said to me darling I'm so pleased you're here I trust you to to look after me so I felt yeah that was good and when he'd gone do you did you wonder where the energy that was him had disappeared to would you, did he believe in an afterlife <laughs> he was always very elusive about that. He had a vision of the afterlife as a, a cocktail party in the sky. I find cocktail parties pretty grisly, but he absolutely loved cocktail parties. Oh. He loved the idea that he would be standing up on a cloud and all his friends would be sort of coming by and chatting over a, over a drink. That was his vision of the afterlife. You don't like a cocktail party because you turn up at the wrong one at the wrong age and there are people right. there saying, Fred, you're not welcome here. Yeah, absolutely. That's, You've that's turned right. up on the wrong cloud, always. Always, always yeah. on the wrong cloud, yeah. Tell me about your mother, your first memories of her. Um, my first memories of my mother are of a very beautifully dressed lady waiting for me on the street as I came out of school and then taking me on very joyful walks through, we, we lived in those days uh, in South Kent, down Walton Street, looking at toys and windows, um, chittering to her about my ambition to get a Batmobile. Uh, I remember her singing to me, and I don't think anybody would accuse either me or my mother of having a great singing voice, but I loved her singing to me. Hello, it's Giles here, and we're honoured that this series of Rosebud has been sponsored by one of the finest hotels in the world, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. One of our American listeners, Mickey Maynard, has been in touch to tell us about her memories of staying at Grosvenor House when she was a teenager. Someone must have taken a liking to us because we were ushered into an enormous suite. It had beautiful wood paneling, a real 1930s streamlined look, and a huge bathroom. We were told to leave our shoes outside if we wanted them polished, which after our walks in London, of course we did. The next morning, our shoes came back, wrapped in tissue and ribbon, as if they were gifts. We had others to wear, so we decided not to unwrap them, but we tucked them in our suitcases for the trip home. Oh, that's a wonderful story, Mickey. Thanks for being in touch. It's this attention to detail that makes the Grosvenor House Hotel such a special place to stay. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are sponsoring this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Who is your first friend outside of your home? You had a sister? Do you have other siblings? Yes, I have a, I have a younger sister who has Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, so Fiona and I are at about four years apart in age and, and grew up together, shared a bunk bed together until um, I was sent off to boarding school. And I had a friend called Oz. And Oz was immediately, from the time I turned up, I had very, very cool. So he would drink nine cups of coffee at breakfast, which for an eight-year-old I really wow. thought was pretty pretty racy stuff. Um, and I, I remain very much in touch with him today, and he's still very, very cool. Well done, Oz. Yeah. So you go to this prep school, and have you, by the time you're at prep school, you'll be eight or nine by then, Yeah. have you begun to see who you are? Have you begun have, what are your first ambitions when you're eight or nine? I mean, that's when I was beginning to form my ambitions quite clearly, I think, by that age. So what were yours? <laughs> well, I want to know what yours are. Tell well, us what your mine were, are. Mine were very, very clear. I remember um, meeting, when I was a little boy, the poet T.S. Eliot, because he was a sidesman at the church that I was a server at. And I was very busy as a child. I was a server at this church in Gloucester Road. I also sang in two church choirs. Uh, so I was very busy. Um, I think this, I now realize because my parents wanted to get me out of the house for the day. But I remembered meeting T.S. Eliot and being told how important he was. And I thought, this is rather good. So I, I, I began to think, I want to be associated with interesting and remarkable people. And so I've kept on doing that. I think that's where that began. But did you actually want to be a modernist poet? I began reading T.S. Eliot. I, well, I learned. He instructed me to le learn McCafferty, the mystery cat. Pretty good. So I did, I did several cats begin. Okay. And then I did begin to read other. I even tried Ezra Pound. Very good. Uh, no, not very good. Very bad. <laughs> Incomprehensible. Still is, as far as I'm concerned. So I got into all that when I was quite young. And I thought, well, there are a variety of things I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer. I thought it would be a biographer. I began a biography of Shakespeare when I was 10. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a politician. Oh. Um, and a similarity with you, I wanted to be the prisons minister, Hopefully which you did. achieved and I didn't achieve. Um, and I felt that was a more discreet thing to say than I wanted to be prime minister, because I wanted to be prime minister, as did you. Um, as does every MP, basically. Yes, yeah. except the rational ones, and there are not <laughs> many of those. So, yes. So, and I also wanted to be an entertainer. Uh, my hero when I was a little boy um, was somebody called Danny Kaye. Danny Kaye, yes. Who was brilliant. Yeah. There was a film called The Court Jester. Yeah. So essentially, when I'm seven, eight, or nine, I'm wanting to be, because of this church, oh yes, I did want to be Pope. I remember a this. Alexander Pope or and, the Pope? <laughs> both, actually, both. But, but first of all, the Pope, because the Pope died. There was a Pope that died in about 1959. You could so. still do it, Charles. No, Don't give up. my parents explained to me, we are Anglicans. You've got to be a Catholic. So I then settled on being the Archbishop of Canterbury. Very good. And I used to conduct services. We'd by then moved to a flat in Earl's Court. And I remember, I can distinctly remember using my mother's eiderdown as my cope and a tea cosy as my mitre. Beautiful. And my father's ties as the sort of stoles. And I do remember I conducted weddings. Uh, I, I married my sooty to my sweep. Yep. The first gay wedding in the Church of England. Very good. 
I was ahead of the game. You were too? So I wanted to be Pope Archbishop of Canterbury. I wanted to be T.S. Eliot. I thought, uh, but I, again, I, I knew my limitations. So I was only writing a biography of Shakespeare. I wasn't going to be Shakespeare. Yeah. I really wanted to be Laurence Olivier, but I settled for saying I wanted to be Danny Kaye. Okay. I wanted to be the Prime Minister, but I settled for saying I wanted to be the Prime Minister. You sound like a very realistic boy. I wasn't so realistic. Um, my ambitions, so I was very interested in doing better than Alexander the Great. I, I thought, I thought, you know, he fell a little short of the mark, yeah. and I could try to try to best that. Very good. And you learned about him at the prep school, the dragon school. That's where you first well, learned I about him. Well, my father, did your father, father talk about him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, I, I'd called my little uh, rocking horse Bucephalus, which must have been, which is Alexander's horse. Um, and my father was always talking about these people. I mean, he would say <laughs> to my sister when, when we were complaining about not having enough water on a train between, you know, Malaysia and. Um, militia in Thailand say, Lawrence of Arabia went through the desert for three days without water. What are you complaining about? Um, so I think those were, you know, the sort of things I thought about. I think if I thought about being an archaeologist, I probably later when I saw the film wanted to be Indiana Jones. If I was going to be a spy, I was going to be James Bond. If I was going to do Kung Fu, I wanted to be Bruce Lee. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a very realistic sense of myself. I mean, it sounds like you, you, you tempered things. I, I imagined that I was going to weep because I had no more worlds to conquer. Well, I think I was telling myself I was going to be the ultimate, but I was realising that within the world that we live, you had to give out slightly more modest ambitions. Oh, very good. That's, that was, good. that's the same reason... You'd probably that my, not be foolish enough on a podcast to say you want to be Alexander the Great. Oh, no, I think that's a re- perfectly reasonable thing to say, you know, um, because there's still time for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm running out of time more rapidly than you. But in those early days, when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, you're forming yourself, um, what was the, the, your first achievement? What did you first actually do that was special at school? Were you athletic? Were you good at... Well, I loved playing rugby, really loved playing rugby, um, but I, of course I'm tiny, so I broke my arm three times in a row. I really loved tackling people really hard. I'm, I'm a, I was a sort of mad little rugby player. I acted. I acted as Coco in the Mikado. <gasps> Great part. So, so that, was, that was, my, was my big role when I was 12 and a half. Um, Do you remember any of the lyrics? What, what was the main song? What's the yeah, it's, 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 it's if something may. It's the little list song. Oh, I've got a little list. Yeah, yeah. None of them be missed. Exactly. That do, you, do you do a modern version? I, of that? I can do a little bit of that. Yeah, I can do a little, <laughs> I can do a little of that. Oh, I, when I was um, when I was nine, I guess I was sent to kung fu training school in Kuoming in Yunnan in China. For the next year, I was sent to live um, in a longhouse in the Borneo jungle, which I really loved. It's most extraordinary. I mean, it was a time when Borneo hadn't been completely wrecked. I was living in an Iban longhouse, surrounded by these very beautiful people, dancing all the way through the night, walking through these incredible primary rainforests and hearing the white-handed gibbons shrieking, um, seeing a tiger floating down a river. Now, th- these were the things that really defined my And were childhood. these yeah. times on a holiday? Because you're spending your term times in Britain, in at first of all at the Dragon and then at Eton, a very conventional middle class, as it was perceived then, now it perceived as an upper middle class uh, way of life. And then on holiday, you'd go back to your family who were living this life in the Far East. Yeah. And uh, this, these two worlds that you lived in, did you juggle them quite comfortably? I think so. I mean, I think. I think. I mean, I think the, the Dragon School, which I went to, was a, must have been a very forgiving school, because I turned up in a batik shirt and wore it for most of the five years I was there without being teased, which implies an amazing degree of tolerance and imagination on the, on the part of teachers and students. I felt very happy. I was like a little monkey charging around. It wasn't until I got to Eton when I was thirteen that there were sort of superior older boys telling me how to dress and telling me how to be cool. And you didn't like that very much? Did you rebel or do you, you well, went along I, with it? I, no, I, 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 um, I was deeply conventional. I sort of uh, immediately sort of shaped up and thought, oh my goodness, I you know, tell my mother I need a new wardrobe. I must immediately, you know, wear a paisley patterned shirt and a pair of black drainpipe jeans and um, winkle pickers or whatever we were wearing in 1986. Because you're this odd mixture of wanting to be quite conventional and also wanting to be seen as I'm different and I'm original. 
Yeah, um, I think that's right. I think what, that's right. What's the source of that? Well, I suppose, I mean, if I, if I go back to one of my real childhood heroes, which Lawrence Arabia, or later hero Alexander Burns, who was a great player of the great game in Afghanistan in the mid-19th century. What does that mean, player of the great game? So he was, he was a British officer who was sent up in disguise uh, across the Hindu Kush to compete against Russian intelligence officers. And these people attract me because, on the one hand, they are British army officers who are expected to adhere to the basic codes of honor, courage, reliability. They get on with things, they grip problems, they solve problems. But yes, they, they do it in a more unusual way. I, I was always, um, I loved the, loved the character of Kim in Kipling for the same reason. I mean, Kim's part of a, a whole bureaucratic enterprise. He has a little file number and a code number, but in the end he gets to uh, disguise himself in the bazaar and go wandering with holy men. When did you have? When did you first fall in love, as opposed to having a, a friendship? Do you think? Um, probably when I was about fifteen. Uh, there was a girl I went to stay with in in Dorset, who uh, I thought was the most extraordinary person I'd ever met. I we went for a long walk late at night under the moonlight till one two in the morning and uh, <laughs> looked at cows in the moonlight together. And I thought this was the most transcendent lyrical experience. I wrote a very, very long lyric poem about looking at cows in the moonlight. Wonderful. Were you a good writer of love letters? No, I don't think so. No, I think I was too complicated and I tried too hard. There are t t too many drafts of those love oh. letters around. Because I, I like to think I was a superb writer of but love letters. You're much more charming than me. You're, I, you've got I, a sort of no, twinkle no, in your no. eye. No. Uh, but I, I did a childhood memoir during lockdown, and I've kept every letter that anybody's ever written to me when I was a child. Boxes, room, I'm in a room as large as this, full of boxes of all this stuff. Gosh. And I wrote to two or three of the girls that I'd known in my teens, saying, you know, I'm doing this book, would you mind if, if I quote this and that? And have you kept any of my letters? Not one of them had kept a single thing. No. Well, it's a lovely Auden poem about that. Is there? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an Auden poem that resonates a lot with me. So it's called Who's Who. It says, A penny life will give you all the facts. How father beat him. How he ran away. What were the deeds of his youth? What things made him the greatest figure of his day? How he climbed mountains. Named a sea. Later biographers even say love made him weep his pints like you and me. But with all his honours on, he longed for one who stayed at home, could whistle, would potter about the garden, read all of his long, marvellous letters, but kept none. Mm. Sorry, read some of his long, marvellous oh. letters, but kept <laughs> yeah. none. And what did this girl, when you were 15, what did she see in you? What were you like at 15? Were you an oddity, or were I, I you... Just, I don't know, I need to, need to, uh, we're getting into territory, we need to start asking your producer for this kind of uh, yeah, feedback. Yeah, indeed, because she, she knew you when you were sort of 19, yeah, 18, 19, yeah. but when I, you I were think, 15. I think probably somebody who took themselves unbelievably seriously oh. and thought too much. I think I was... The, the, the refrain from every girl I ever went out with is, stop thinking, you think too much. Fine. And did you manage to show an interest in them, which I've discovered over the years is the secret of eventual success. Yes, it can't I, be all about us, yeah. Rory. Well, I think it took me a long time to get there. I think that's probably <laughs> the story of my romantic failures, yeah. Yes. So what was your first successful uh, relationship, your first successful uh, love relationship? Gosh, very difficult. I didn't think any of my relationships actually were successful until I got married, really. Really? Otherwise, you would have got married sooner. Otherwise, yeah. I got married sooner. The, the, there was a girl at Oxford who... Um, uh, I was incredibly in love with, not 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 your producer, but another girl. And in this case, um, I bought 50 pots of hyacinths and laid them outside her door. I think in modern terms it would be called stalking, I think mm. is the, the technical... Yes, you'd be arrested now. ...technical term yeah. for what was going on there. Um, and uh, I remember her saying to me, after I'd been sort of awake for three nights sort of outside her door, she said to me, uh, Rory... Um, you know, would you, would you marry me? And I thought a little bit about it, and I said, yes. And she said, oh, I was just asking. 
that was the closest I ever got to getting married oh, before. Yeah, but 50 hyacinths <laughs> deserve some sort of reaction. Were you around with, when telegrams were around? Uh, just the end of that, yeah. Because when I was at Oxford, telegrams were a thing, and I would send 10 or 20 telegrams a day to my intended Gosh. with messages of one kind Gosh, or another. Blimey. Yeah, quite expensive. Like, yeah, that is That's expensive. But they're there. They are. Now, those haven't been thrown away. The thing about sending a telegram is people do tend to keep telegrams. Gosh. So there's a record of those. That's very good. So yeah, at yeah. school, um, are you, you're clever. You do quite well. You do O-levels? Were they O-levels in the yeah, old days? Yeah, in my, I was the first year the, of GCSEs. Very good. Well, yeah, never mind. Yeah. And you leave school yeah. planning to go to Oxford or you get a place immediately? Um, I get a place immediately and I spend my gap year in the army, in the Black Watch. Ah, and this is, is this the time that you taught Prince William and Prince Harry briefly? Yes. And how did that come about? It came about because uh, Prince Wales had sat next to me because I was a swatty boy. I was sat next to him at dinner when he came to the school. Oh, this is King Charles as now is, but then yeah, the Prince yeah, of Wales. Yeah. And, and he's got and, these and, sons. And my good-looking yeah. friend, Jont, was sat next to Princess Diana. Very good. Um, but I sat next to Prince Charles. <laughs> yes, that's very good. They put the handsome one yeah, with Diana yeah. and the, um, the you. Book, the bookish one. Yeah, the bookish one uh, yeah. with um, the Prince of Wales. So, so I talked to Prince Wales, and he very sweetly remembered our conversation and then said um, later when he was looking for a tutor for his children, um, would I like to come to Highgrove in Gloucestershire and then go up to Scotland to teach them during the summer holidays? And what's your first recollection of that? Uh, my first recollection of that is that I managed to lock myself in his bathroom uh, without realising that the bathroom door was an anti-terrorist steel door. Oh. And so Prince Wales, at about uh, 11.30 <laughs> at night, knocks on the door and says, would you mind turning out the light before you go to sleep? And I say, sir, I've locked myself in the bathroom. Wow. He says, don't be ridiculous. You're not suggesting I wake up the whole house at this time in the morning God. to knock down the door. And I say, no, no, it's, quite, it's fine. I'll, I'll just spend the night sleeping on the floor. Uh, and about half an hour later, there he is in his his dressing gown, <laughs> commanding men with axes. <laughs> That's a great story. And what were William and Harry like as pupils? What were you teaching them? What were you supposed uh, to be teaching them? Uh, well, they, they were, um, they were um, I guess, 8 and 11, and we were uh, supposed to be doing uh, Wordsworth and um, doing Macbeth. Um, but the truth is, I don't really talk about this. I mean, I, I, I feel that, uh, having I've not been much of a teacher, but I do feel I owe it to them not to gossip about them. But it was a very special experience in my life. I was very happy to have done it. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Very interesting. I'm sure they benefited from it. They're quite right, too. I mean, when I next see them, I shall say, how's your Wordsworth? How's your Macbeth? Uh, you remember that the Prince of Wales, when he played Macbeth, his father turned up and laughed, <laughs> laughed at it. Just, you know. Anyway, they're very keen as a family on Shakespeare, which is very good. So you go to Oxford, and when you're at Oxford, what are, what are your ambitions there? What's your first thing when you arrived? When I arrived at Oxford, I had, I had a list of things. Well, what does he want to do? I'm very interested in the, the comparison. Well, I, I, I turned up at Oxford wanting to fulfill my father's ambitions for himself when he had been at Oxford in oh. the 1920s. And what were his ambitions? His, well, he, when he arrived at Oxford at the end of the 1920s, the things to do were to be the president of the union, the editor of ISIS, to direct the Ouds, the Dramatic Society. And he had friends who had done all these things. And I'd been brought up on that. Until I arrived in Oxford as for the interview, I'd never been to Oxford before in my life. So I arrived at New College, and I set about achieving these different goals. So I became the editor of the magazine ISIS. I became the president of the union. Gosh. I directed the Dramatic Society. I did all the things that were on my father's checklist. How wonderful. So I was fulfilling his ambition, but at the same time, I felt I was fulfilling oh, gosh, my well, own. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. No, no, my, no you were not so, as clear so, as that. Not as clear as that. So both my parents went to Oxford. Yeah. And uh, their view of Oxford is that you should do absolutely no work and that what you needed to do was, was uh, I think, essentially uh, chat to people and socialise. Your aspirations were social aspirations. Entirely social. Mine were sort of ambition aspirations. Yeah. I, I just wanted to be cool. That's all I cared about, yeah. So you didn't at that stage want to be Prime Minister? Or maybe no, the union no, no, had no, fallen No, I thought the union wasn't very cool. No, I, I, I walked around Oxford in a pair of... Um, bright yellow jeans um, uh, and for some time a jacket made out of a hessian sack. Uh, my best friend, uh, Felix, uh, peroxided his hair and uh, yeah, I, I drove around a little Volkswagen Beetle. I had a tutor called Jonathan Barnes who wore knee breeches and taught me Aristotle 
And uh, he would say, Rory Stewart is a very clever boy, but his idol is sin. And I, I sort of thought that was a real compliment. I thought that's, I was doing what I, my parents had told me how to do. Father went up to Oxford after the beginning of the war. So he went up in 41. All of them thought they were going to be killed. As far as he was concerned, the only purpose of being at Oxford was he had this girlfriend in Boar's Hill who he'd run to every night and then climb back over the wall to get to his college at night. But he was quite clear he wasn't going to complete his degree and that they were all off to be killed. So he didn't really think that the point of Oxford was doing anything very serious. But you did intend to complete your degree. I did intend to, but I was pretty impatient. I think probably you're right. We all read our fathers into it. Mm. So all I wanted to do was get out and start working. So I, I joined the Foreign Office did all my foreign office entrance exams before. While you were still there. While I was still there. So, so within two months of leaving, I was sitting at my desk in Whitehall. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss. The lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. When did you first realize that not everybody liked you? Oh, it's at when I was 13 at Eton. Yeah. But it was particularly, I mean, particularly teachers. So I had a teacher at Eton called Mr. Donaldson. And Mr. Donaldson really, really disliked me. He was my chemistry teacher. So when I would turn up with my homework, he would burn my homework on the Bunsen burner in front of me without reading it. And if without I, reading it? Yeah, and if I stuck up my hand, he'd squirt me with the, um, with the distilled water and he'd make me sit in the vacuum. So there's a huge glass box for chemical experiments he'd make me sit in. Oh, and if I stuck my hand up to ask a question, he'd say, we don't want to hear from you, you pretentious prat. Like this, right? So I eventually went to my... Um, uh, tutor and I said, uh, you know, I'm having a slightly difficult time in chemistry, doing all my homework, it's all being burned, etc. And he said, don't worry, I'll have a chat with Mr. Donaldson. So I, I turned up the next day and, and he, he went like this. He went, um, tapped the edge of the glass. Class, 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 can we all have a one-minute silence for Mr. Stewart, who's feeling very sorry for himself and gone sneaking to his tutor? And then I, I'd stick up my hand, and he'd go, oh, yes, Mr. Stewart, what words of wisdom would you like to share with the class today? <laughs> oh, Mr. Stewart, how interesting, how wonderful. And then within a week, he was making me sit in the vacuum cabinet again and squirting me with the still water. Oh, well, fascinating. Yes. It's actually, it's a really gripping story. It's a good story, isn't it? Yeah. It is a it, good, it's, yeah, it's yeah, a good yeah, story. Yeah. Did you try to modify your behavior, though? Did you, were you conscious that there were people who wanted to put you back in your box? Because you clearly were a bit of an oddity, and you, you had this sort of sense of your own style, which you still have. Um, which, uh, I, was, I was very conscious of it at the coronation. I saw it at the coronation. And I was envious of you because you were wearing a Privy Councillor's uniform. And when I was in Parliament and in government, I was a Lord Commissioner of the Treasury, and there was a Treasury Board uniform that we could have worn. Well, quickly, it was made clear to me that you're not going to dress in this, even if you could, for a state occasion. You're not going to be the only person who's a member of the Treasury Board wearing this outfit, because the Prime Minister's not going to wear it, and he is the first Lord of the Treasury. And nor is the Chancellor, and he is the second Lord of the Treasury. And certainly when we came down to attendant minnows like yourself, we're not going to have you wearing wearing this uniform. But I thought, yes, you looked extremely stylish, but I also thought... But he is going to look different from all the other people there. 
So there is this mixture in you of being both clubbable and likable and also here I amable. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. And really what I want to get to is the first principles of why that is and when you... Because I think me being like that, and I was a bit like that, it, it, it troubled me. And I think that's probably why I've tried to accommodate myself um, because I, maybe, I'm, maybe I need to be loved more than you do. A very interesting question. I mean, it sounds like your description of your childhood is, is very much like mine. I, mm. I mean, I can imagine myself wanting to be the Pope, definitely. Um, why is it that maybe you accommodated yourself better to these things than me? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, um, I think the problem is that even, 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 even when I try to accommodate myself, I'm not very good at it. I think Because I'm, I'm thinking, looking at you, because I'm thinking about you a lot in the last 24 hours, is that you may have missed out. You're clearly a brilliant and remarkable and interesting person, and you are much loved and admired. It's true, and there's a charisma about you that I first came across when you began doing those videos and apparently walking along the street talking to yourself. And, you know, that's when the public magic began. And yet, looking at the list, there's been a lot of missing out in the sense that you clearly were, in many ways, a very capable minister and you had good ideas and right ideas. And I know you had great satisfaction in being the prison's minister because you actually can see we can make a difference in quite small ways. We could change the lives of people. You know, there's a crossroads and we can actually send them off in that direction. Really exciting and rewarding. But all that's eluded you. You became a candidate for being mayor of London. And as the Conservative candidate, you know, for example, this time around, you might well even have won. But you actually dropped out of that. And then by then you weren't a Conservative. So I feel there's been lots of opportunities of if you had actually played the game more conventionally, you would have achieved the goals more readily. Yes, but I think the difference is that I'm, I, I think it's a really good thing to get into. And I think the question is how important are the goals to you? So I, I think, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's welcome to con contradict me, but my suspicion is that if I'd been prepared to back him, he would have left, left me in his cabinet. I was in Theresa May's cabinet, I was doing a reasonable job, and I'd just run against him for the leadership. And everybody else who bent the knee to him, uh, Matt Hancock, Sajid Javid, were awarded by being made Chancellor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he called me in uh, for a conversation to say, uh, Rory, um, you know, I, you know, we've had our differences over Brexit this and the other, but you know, uh, it doesn't really matter, does it? Come on, you know, get together, get Brexit done, etc. And. I had to say, I'm really sorry, Boris, but I've made it clear from the beginning that I think I, I will not serve in your cabinet. I don't think you should be prime minister. And I think this version of Brexit is deeply damaging. And I'm very, very happy to do a nice transition and help whoever the next Secretary of State for International Development is. And here's some ideas on what you might want to do with the department. But it's without me. And I would never have been able to do the reverse. I mean, so it's not really, it doesn't even really feel like an option to me. I, I don't feel sort of haunted by, Good. if only I'd bent my knee to Boris, I could have been a cabinet minister and then been in a better position when he fell to be able to run for leadership. Yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's, re that's really what I was getting to. I can see how you might have had differences of view there. I'm just seeing if there's a pattern along the way. Well, the, the pattern is, the, no, you're right. I, I think it's some, there is a pattern. And the pattern is that I um, put an, and it's, it's, probably a form of um, uh, this appealing to you as the archbishop here, but there's probably a form of, of vanity and taking myself too seriously in all this, but I, I'm not prepared to compromise with certain kinds of things. I don't I, I don't want to be a cabinet minister who doesn't I, I'm, with, I'm with you in there. Yeah, yeah. I think the risk is you end up making a, a noise, a very attractive noise, but not making the difference that in your early days had been your ambition. Quite right. And this is where Machiavelli is absolutely right. Machiavelli says, you know, you want to make it to the top. You know, you've got to dissemble. You've got to flatter. You've got to lie. But the problem with Machiavelli is that he's asking more of a sacrifice than I think most people who read Machiavelli understand. When push comes to shove and George Osborne's saying to you on the door of the lobby, if you walk through that door and vote against government, I'm not going to promote you. So you're going to be on the back benches for five years. You can't actually turn around and say, oh, I'm, okay, George, I'm so sorry. I'll, 
or back out without feeling rubbish about yourself. What was your first experience of failure, of something not working, or even of rejection? It could be personal, doesn't need to be professional. Um, I mean, I think I had small failures early on in life. Later, I had much bigger failures. I mean, I think failing to become Prime Minister against Boris Johnson was a, a failure that knocked me back nearly two years, two and a half years of misery and introspection. Gosh. So that was a very profound failure. You clearly thought you might, you were in with a chance. Well, strange. And, and, and also, I thought he's such a bad person. This is so bad for the country that it's entirely necessary for me to defeat him. And in an odd way, I mean, I think being rejected in politics is tough, but being rejected in favour of somebody that you despise is much, much worse. So there were earlier failures. You know, I failed to get a first when I hoped I'd get a first at Oxford. I failed a lot in my early days as a backbencher. I had a very humiliating kind of five years in the backbenches where I didn't really feel I was achieving very much. But nothing really hit me as hard as saying... I think the country's in trouble. I think this no-deal Brexit is very damaging. I think this person is extremely unsuitable to be prime minister and failing to, to win that argument. Are you reasonably good at personal relationships? I mean, have you had any failed big relationships? I've had failed big relationships. I mean, I think I, I was a very bad uh, boyfriend. I wasn't... I, wasn't, um, I think I was... Um, cared too much about myself. I don't think I was careful enough uh, with people that I went out with. I think I hurt people. I damaged them. And I think they um, would feel very rightly angry with me. But your wife, it's a success. How did you meet her? <laughs> My wife is a success. I, we met in Afghanistan. Um, I was running a Probably the thing I'm most proud of in my life was, was setting up and running a, a non-profit, a charity in Afghanistan which restored the old city of Kabul and worked, set up a clinic and a school and worked with traditional artisans. And I lived in Kabul and I was working in Dari and I brought out volunteers and they came to live with me in a big mud fort that we also restored. And they came from everywhere, from Australia, from America, from Spain. And we worked together in the old city. And one of those volunteers um, was a astrophysics teacher uh, in American schools, a science teacher, she'd studied mm -hmm. astrophysics. Um, called Shoshana, who came out to work for me. And initially there was nothing romantic about it. She she worked as, uh, eventually as my chief staff and then as my deputy, and then I handed over the charity to her because she was extraordinary. You know, she had turned up age 26, having not had a passport till she was 18. It was all very well for me. I mean, as you pick up, I mean, I'd spent, I thought the only way of doing the job of running a charity in the center of the old city, Kabul, is if you'd spent your whole life from your early childhood floating on jungle rafts. And she turned out to be, have a memory like a steel trap, to have the most extraordinary personal skills and relationships, to be just so profoundly effective, reliable, honorable. And I, I fell in love with her, I think, first through her character as a leader. And is she still the leader within the relationship, do you think? Oh, I think so in many ways. Yes, I think so in many ways. Is the right answer. Uh, <laughs> and you had children. How many children have you got? Two children. I've got and the eight. first one. Now, tell me, is this story true? You, I think, delivered your first child. Is this true, though? The, the, this is true. I mean, it, it is true. But it was a very, very easy birth. I oh. mean, Shoshana did all the work. The baby came out very smoothly. Basically, all I had to do was catch it. And was that a special moment? Very special moment. So obviously we'd intended to have the baby in hospital. Yeah. Um, Shoshana has the, the shortest uh, labor of any human being on earth. And so <laughs> nowadays, I don't know if we've been through this, but when you go to a hospital, they're always saying, don't come in too early. Mm. You know, wait till you have a certain number of um, contractions. So we were being very well behaved, timing number of contractions. And then finally, uh, everything started happening. And so I called nine... Nine, nine, and they were wonderful. They said, you know, put down some towels on the bathroom floor, lie down on your wife. So I did so. And uh, they said, um, eventually they said, can you see a head? And I said, I don't think so. And then I said, oh, I don't know, I think I, think I can. So I said, well, push it back in again. We don't want it coming out too quickly. So I 
pushed it back in again. I didn't know that was done. Well, that was what I was told to do on the phone. I, th- I don't know whether My it's God. accepted medical practice. So I pushed but it back. But it was in. literally appearing, the baby. Appearing, yeah, so pushed the pushed head back in it then, and they said, give it a bit more time, and then it came, and then there was oh. a little bit about removing Whoa. one arm and a shoulder. And then I was very, very lucky. Oh, and, and my mother-in-law, my Shoshana's mother, who was staying upstairs, came down in the middle of all of this. Um, but, and, and was wonderful. Um, but I was very lucky. I was the first person in the world to touch this child, apart from, I suppose, uh, my wife, yeah. Um, and um, I, I still a very special bond with my, my little boy that mm. I was able to And what's he called? Well. He's called... Alexander, but he very but, good, of course. But he, he is. likes to be called Sasha. He doesn't like the word. He doesn't like the name Alexander. It's, called, it's called Alexander Wolf. Alexander name. Wolf, mm. as in Wolf of Quebec, or yeah, all that as sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and, and is, the animal, and the kind of and, oh, the wolf, yeah. the wolf spelled W O L F. Yeah, yeah, as in the animal, as in the animal. Yeah, yeah. Alexander Wolf. I thought, oh, wow. he, I thought he could go through life being called Wolf Stewart. Yeah, be good, um, it? yeah. Do you have a daughter as well? No, I have a second son called, who's called Ivo. 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 Yeah, and his spirit animal is a bear. So he's called Ivo Bear Stewart. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. well, that's very good. Yeah. What is, because we have to come to an end, because I love talking to you, what is, and you can tell me if we've forgotten things we should have discussed, what is your first, it's all about first, what is your first rule in life that you would like to share with Alexander and Ivo? The first rule. Always have a go. Make the decisions. Get on with it. Get on with it. And is there something from your experience that you hope they won't do, something you did that you could share with them and say, don't do that, boys? It's awfully difficult. I mean, I, you know, obviously they shouldn't take themselves as seriously as I took myself. Um, they shouldn't be flattered into jobs. I was flattered into a job in Harvard that I shouldn't have taken. But I, I think it's, I mean, obviously you've got to make your own mistakes. And I think the great gift that my father gave me was to make it clear that he was proud of me and was happy for me to do almost anything that I wanted to do. It's a bit ambivalent about my becoming an MP. He didn't have much time for MPs, but basically he was happy to get behind whatever I wanted to do. And I hope that with them and they, if they're lucky enough to have children or want to have children, can feel that sense of giving people freedom to do what they want and for their parents to be proud of them. One of my heroes was the late Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, Mm. who lived to be 99, Mm. which means you're 50 this year. Mm. You're only halfway through. Mm. Um, What are you going to achieve in the next 50 years? What's what's the ambition now? Well, I think I would like to produce more serious books. I'd like to think harder and more aggressively and more introspectively. I think I haven't pushed as hard as I could as a writer, I think my writing is fine, but I'm not moving sufficiently into uncomfortable territory. And as a person, what would you like to be in the future? Uh, I would like to spend much more time meditating. I'd like to spend much more time on silent retreats. I'd like to spend much more time trying to be a version of your younger self. <laughs> you can't top that, can you? That's the reason we had you on Rosebud for that final line. Yes, you want to be more like me. <laughs> well, and I'd like to be more like you. So Thank there you. we are. Let's meet in the middle. Thank you, Rory Stewart. Oh, before we go, I just want to dip into the mailbag for a moment. Jay Davis from Plymouth has been in touch to tell us about his first memory. I remember the day my little brother was born, Christmas Day, 1982. I was four and a half. My mum went off in the ambulance and I went back into the house and got on with the very important job of tidying up all of my toys so that my little brother couldn't play with them. My aunt, who was looking after me, pointed out that it was unlikely that a newborn baby would want to play with toys. But as far as I was concerned, there was no ways... I was taking any chances. Well, all I can tell you, Jay, in my capacity as an amateur psychologist, is you don't need to worry about the younger brother. It's the younger brother who's going to have the problems. You as the firstborn come out into the world and you're welcomed. Everyone thinks, oh, yes, look, it's the firstborn. We love him. You are the golden child. And that's why firstborn people 
well, they assume they're going to achieve a lot because they've been given that impression by their parents. So you didn't need to worry, Jay. Anyway, if you have recollections, first memories that you want to share with us on Rosebud, do get in touch. As you know, it's simply hello at rosebudpodcast.com. That's hello at rosebudpodcast.com. That's it for this week. And next time, who have we got? Oh, Miriam Margulies. And I think she will surprise you, amuse you, and actually move you too. Do join us next time. And thank you for listening. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard.